got a brand new sweetie, better than the one before. Oh, she's got everything and a little bit more. Hello and welcome to episode 141 of Additional History, Headlines You Probably Missed. I'm your host, Tiffany Clark, and today I've got a famous date from history that many of you out there listening will remember. I know I definitely remember it. The images and videos from this event filled my television screen, and I remember the shock and horror of it all. I was young enough that comprehending it all was difficult. It seemed like it was so crazy that it must be happening in a faraway land. Nope, it was happening right here in the United States. I also have three great additional history stories for you, and I'll have a fun historical advertisement at the end of the episode. Today's famous headline comes from the front page of the Los Angeles Times. The date is April 30th, 1992. That right there is probably enough information for you to know what this episode is about. But I'll tell you the headline anyway. It says, All four in King Beating acquitted. The day before, on April 29th, four policemen were found innocent after being charged with assault for beating Rodney King during a traffic stop in Los Angeles, sparking what would become known as the L.A. riots. For years, there had been a lot of tension between the police department and minority groups in the area, and the results of this trial were the straws that broke the camel's back. The year before, on March 3, 1991, Rodney King, a black man, led police on a chase through the streets of L.A., He was on parole for a previous crime, and he'd been drinking. So when the cop tried to pull him over, he knew he was in big trouble. When the chase finally ended, the others in the car with him were placed in the back of a patrol car. But the cops began to beat and kick Rodney. The beating was caught on video camera by a bystander, and the video of the altercation soon made it into the media and news stations, where it was played over and over and over. People were outraged, and they called for charges to be brought against the four cops in the incident. The trial took place the following spring, but as I just read in the headline, they were all acquitted. People were angry, and the crowds of angry people grew bigger and bigger and bigger. The cops knew it might be problematic, and they began to come out, making the crowd angrier. By the end of the day, people started to riot and loot. Stores were broken into, and all of their merchandise stolen. At least two innocent men, one white and one Latino, were dragged from their vehicles while they were driving down the street, minding their own business, and beaten in retaliation. No cops stepped in to help, and both of those men suffered extensive injuries. The violence didn't stop there, though. Neighborhoods all across South and Central Los Angeles began to burn as the rioters firebombed building after building. Thousands of buildings. The rioters smashed windows and took everything they could get their hands on. Then they attacked one of the police headquarters in downtown L.A. The governor of California issued a state of emergency, and 2,000 members of the National Guard were called out to help. With so few places being safe to go, buses were stopped. Schools were closed. Mail delivery was stopped, and professional sports games were canceled. Many stores closed, too, with their owners fearing for their safety. However, a lot of the Korean businesses remained open, and their owners armed themselves, 
and decided to take action if the looters came their way. Pretty much, it was pure chaos in the city of Los Angeles. George H.W. Bush, who was president at the time, denounced the violence of the cops and the violence of the riots. And on May 1st, Rodney King himself took to the airwaves, begging people to stop. He said, can't we all get along? More members of the National Guard were brought in, along with federal troops and Marines. There were around 10,000 serving by the time the riots ended. The riots started on the afternoon of April 29th, but they kept going and going until May 3rd, four days later. On May 4th, the city curfew was lifted, and those in the city began to rebuild their businesses and their lives. According to History.com, when all was said and done, 2,000 people had been injured, 12,000 people had been arrested, 3,000 buildings were burned, 3,000 additional businesses were affected in other ways, and 63 people were dead. The damages added up to $1 billion, and with so many businesses gone, between 20 and 40,000 people were left without jobs. It was absolutely horrible and terrifying. As I'm sure you know, I could tell you a lot more about the L.A. riots, but I think it's time to get started on our additional history stories. So, let's find out what else was being reported the same day Los Angeles burned. For my first additional history story of the day, I'm taking a story from The Courier out of Waterloo, Iowa. This is from April 30th, 1992. The headline says, Altman, Girlfriend, Plot and Murder, Jury Told. Yes, it's a murder case. The trial of a man, 24-year-old David Fole, was currently going on. He was accused of murdering Marion Atkinson on December 9th of the previous year in her home in Sheffield, Iowa. Marion was a 69-year-old grandmother at the time of her death. Her husband had passed away 11 years earlier, and he had been a dentist in town. Marion worked as a real estate agent, but she'd retired a couple of years before her death. After her death, the news reported that even though she was retired, she was still serving on the board of the Sheffield Savings Bank, and it was said that she was active in church and civic affairs, and Marion's neighbors all adored her. They said she took care of people when they were sick and made holiday treats to share, and she even sent postcards to the neighborhood children when she went on vacations. To me, she sounds like the perfect neighbor. So why would David Fole kill Marion? What was the connection? Well, he claimed he was tricked into the killing. You see, according to his mother, he was an alcoholic. And when Marion Atkinson's 18-year-old grandson... Chris Altman found that out, he used it to his advantage. Chris, the grandson, had spent a lot of time going from one home for troubled youth to another during his teenage years. His mother, Marion's daughter, had died when he was 10 or 11, and his father had remarried, and Chris just couldn't seem to keep himself out of trouble. Marion didn't like seeing her grandson like that, and she tried to help him out. She took him in. She bought him things like clothing. She fed him. She housed him. At one point, she got him his own apartment up the road in Mason City and paid for his rent. 
But none of these things worked out, and Chris still wouldn't get his life together. After her death, one of Marion's friends was quoted in the newspaper saying, Marion did so much for him. All his life, she sort of felt sorry for him. He never did anything except cause trouble. He's been a constant problem. Anyway, Marion finally decided that she'd had enough of his behavior and told him she wasn't going to give him any more money. This made Chris very angry. He apparently thought he deserved the money, and there wasn't any reason why his grandmother shouldn't give it to him. Besides that, Chris had just found out that his 15-year-old girlfriend, Jenny Frank, was pregnant. The couple had no place to go, and they were forced to live in Chris's car. I'm not sure why a 15-year-old girl wasn't living with her parents still. The article gives no explanation of that. Maybe she got kicked out. Who knows? Anyway, the couple was desperate for a place to live, and Jenny was quoted as saying, You couldn't raise the baby living in the car, could you? Chris was so angry that his grandmother had cut him off financially that he kept telling people that he wished she would just die. I guess he figured if she was no longer in the picture, he would inherit some of her money, or even get her house. Well, the woman was just fine with her health, and she wasn't going to die anytime soon. So the two teenagers decided that maybe, just maybe, they could help that process along and speed up her death. The couple had a friend named Mark Torres, and he introduced them to David Fole. Jenny said that when they met David, they knew right away that they would be able to manipulate him into doing their dirty work. And Mark Torres planned to help. On the night of the murder, Chris took David and Mark by the house and described the layout of his grandmother's home to them. He told them exactly where his grandmother's bedroom was and where the knives were kept in the kitchen. He even went so far as to leave a side door unlocked at the house. There was no question that his actions were pre-planned. Then Chris, Jenny, Mark, and David began driving around town. They dropped Mark off at his home with the intention to come back later for him. But spoiler alert, he got lucky and he did not end up going with them when they came back. But knowing that David was the type of person that could be convinced to do things under the right circumstances, Chris and Jenny started handing him beers. When he'd finished one off, they'd hand him another. As the evening progressed, David continued drinking until he'd had several quarts of beer. Jenny and Chris didn't drink anything. I'm not sure if David caught on that night or if he didn't realize that the other two weren't drinking until later. Anyway, the couple talked about wanting Marion to die and that they wished someone would kill her. Supposedly, they offered David $2,000 to do the job. Jenny tried to convince people later that they'd just been joking. She said, quote, But I don't know if he, meaning Chris, really wanted it done or not. He was just joking. But I don't know. It got out of hand. If they really did offer David $2,000 for the murder, where did they plan on getting the money? I didn't find an answer to that question. After David was sufficiently drunk, the couple drove him back to Marion Atkinson's home, and they stayed in the driveway while David went into the house. A short time later, he came back out with blood on his clothing and said, She's dead. He had stabbed poor Marion 16 times. Then, the group left, and Jenny and Chris and David went back to Mason City, Iowa, about 20 miles away. 
In Mason City, they called the police department, and they asked for someone to do a welfare check on Chris's grandmother. The police department refused. Next, they called the Franklin County Sheriff's Office and asked them to do a welfare check. The Sheriff's Office turned down their request, too. Now, the articles I read didn't say what reasoning the youths were giving when they made the phone calls, so I'm not sure if that's why there was a refusal or if the authorities told them a certain amount of time needed to pass since someone had heard from her or what. I really can't say. Basically, the reason for the calls was that Chris didn't want to be the one to find his grandmother. He knew what David had done, and he wanted to distance himself from the murder as much as he could. Since the police weren't responding to them, David and Chris eventually gave up and decided to just wait it out. The next day, after none of Marianne's neighbors had seen her outside, a couple of neighbors got together and decided to check on her. She didn't answer her door, so they went into her house and found her in her bedroom. Well, it only took a few hours of police work before Chris and David were arrested and found themselves in huge trouble. Initially, David was charged with the actual murder, and Chris was charged with aiding and abetting. Both of those charges carried life sentences if they were convicted. When it came time for the trials, David and Chris wanted separate trials. David's lawyer insisted that he should only be charged with second-degree murder since he wasn't the one who had planned it in the first place. And thankfully, there were two headlines in the June 7, 1992 edition of The Courier that I was happy to read. The first said, full sentence to life in prison for murder. And the second said, victim's grandson found guilty of arranging killing. Both men were found guilty of first-degree murder and given life sentences. They are both still alive and locked up today, 30 years later. As far as Jenny goes, she agreed to testify against the other two, if she could be charged as a juvenile rather than as an adult. And I'm not sure what kind of trial she had since that information wasn't public. There is someone with her name in the Iowa prison records, and if I'm reading it correctly, she was released from probation in 1997. And speaking of Jenny, remember how the murder happened because she was pregnant and the couple was scared to raise a baby without a permanent place to live? Well, it turned out that Jenny wasn't pregnant after all. She had been wrong all along, and Marion's murder was even more senseless. For my second additional history story of the day, I'm going to tell you about a story that just had a short documentary made about it for the 30th anniversary this year. It was released in April by the news website NorthJersey.com. The headline for this story comes from the April 30th, 1992 edition of the Longview Daily News out of Longview, Washington. It says, Exxon exec may have been kidnapped. Notice that the headline said, may have been kidnapped. At the time of the first printing, nobody knew for sure what had happened. What they did know was that a very important, very wealthy man had disappeared in really strange circumstances and nobody could figure out where he went. On April 29th, the day the verdict that led to the LA riots was read, Sidney J. Riso got in his car in his Morris Township, New Jersey driveway and started to back down that driveway. 
His wife said she assumed he was going to work, like he did every morning at that time. Mr. Riso was a high-level executive with Exxon International, the branch of Exxon that was responsible for the company's gas and oil production outside of the United States and Canada. Sidney and his wife Patricia lived in a beautiful home in an affluent neighborhood. They would donate their time and money to charity projects, and they raised five kids and led pretty ordinary lives until April 29, 1992. Sydney didn't actually go to work that morning. Instead, a neighbor spotted his car at the end of the driveway a short time after he supposedly had left. The driver's side door was wide open and the car was still running. Sydney, however, was nowhere to be found. The police were called, but nobody knew what to make of it. Had he been kidnapped? Had he wandered off into the nearby woods? Did something bad happen to him? There was no ransom note and no signs of a struggle, but the police decided the best thing would be to treat the case as a high-profile missing person case. They called in the FBI and the New Jersey State Troopers to come help. Exxon even sent some of their security agents to help, too. Right away, there were skeptics. According to the article under the headline I just read to you, analysts told the New York Times that they doubted Riso was kidnapped, because it would be a lot easier to pull something like that off while he was traveling internationally, which he probably did a lot of, rather than in the U.S. They also doubted the fact that Riso would be kidnapped, because they said high-level executives like him would have been trained on how to respond to threats. Um, I'm sorry, what? (laughs) Anyone can be kidnapped, no matter how much training you have, right? I thought that was a strange statement. Anyway, Sydney's family and all those agents and cops and security guards waited and waited for some sort of communication to come in, whether from a kidnapper asking for ransom or from Sydney himself. Finally, 26 hours after the kidnapping, the Exxon company received a phone call. The caller told them that they would find a letter about the kidnapping taped to a lamppost at the Livingston shopping mall. The authorities wasted no time getting over to the mall, and sure enough, just like promised, there was a letter taped to a lamppost. Inside the letter, the kidnappers gave a list of demands and instructions. They also enclosed Sydney's Exxon credit card so that they could prove they actually had him and it wasn't just a hoax. In the letter, the kidnappers stated that they were part of an eco-terrorist group called the Warriors of the Rainbow. The letters told the searchers to go to a park and look behind a certain rock, and there would be another letter, with even more instructions. Once again, the authorities followed directions and found another letter. The kidnappers were demanding $18.5 million in $100 bills for the release of Sydney. It was the largest ransom ever asked for anywhere. A man from Exxon was instructed to take the money with him and wait by a phone booth outside a restaurant at a specific time. Everyone complied, and they tried to follow the instructions exactly. Except the man waited and waited and waited at the phone booth, and no call came in. He was there for hours, and the phone never rang. They later found out that it was because one of the kidnappers was dyslexic, 
and mixed up the numbers that he was supposed to call. Anyway, Patricia Riso was devastated that they weren't successful in getting her husband back. And the authorities were pretty upset, too. Nobody knew what to do next. It seemed like all they were doing was waiting. Weeks went by before anyone heard anything from the kidnappers again. In fact, a call didn't come in until June 18th. Remember, the kidnapping had taken place on April 29th. The authorities were once again given very specific instructions, and they were told to drive to the meeting place in the Riso family station wagon. So, the authorities picked out a female FBI agent that looked a little like one of the Riso's daughters to drive the car that night. It was once again a scavenger hunt. They were led from one phone booth to another, and from one bench to another, to find notes and letters taped underneath. Finally, they were led to one last phone booth in a poorly lit area near a construction site. One of the men assigned to the case waited for a call to come in. Meanwhile, there were between 250 and 300 FBI agents placed all over town, watching every phone booth to see who went in to make a phone call. Sure enough, at the exact same time that the man in charge received a call at his phone booth, another female agent saw a man go inside a different phone booth and make a call. He was wearing latex gloves, and the call both started and ended at the same time as the kidnapper's call. The FBI agent followed the man when he left and was able to track his license plate to a rental car company. And from there, they were able to track down the kidnappers. Much to the surprise of everyone, it wasn't an eco-terrorist group called Warriors of the Rainbow behind the kidnapping. Instead, it was a husband and wife team, Arthur and Irene Seal. Irene was a teacher, but Arthur was a former police officer with a record of police brutality, which is kind of fitting considering what today's famous date is. Anyway, he eventually retired from the force and started working security for Exxon. He worked there for a while, but when Exxon had to make some cutbacks, Arthur lost his job. He was given a severance package, and he and Irene decided to move down to South Carolina. In South Carolina, the couple started an interior design business, and they quickly started spending money they didn't have. They bought a nice home. They bought matching Mercedes. And they even bought a sailboat, even though they didn't know how to sail. Yes, they soon went bankrupt. They moved to Colorado and tried to make a go of it there, but that didn't work either. And they ended up living in Arthur's parents' basement. That's when he came up with an outrageous plan to become an overnight millionaire. On the night of her arrest during a police interrogation, Irene admitted to what they had done. She said that she had posed as a jogger on the morning of the kidnapping, and when sent him back down the driveway, he stopped and opened his car door to get his newspaper. That's when they blocked his way with a van. Her husband got out and held Sydney at gunpoint, forcing him into the back of the van. Inside the van was a big wooden box with hinges and a lock on the lid. There were small holes drilled in the sides to let air in, and when Sydney realized that the seals were going to put him in the box, he decided it was time to fight back. During the struggle, Arthur's gun went off, and Sidney was shot in the arm. Luckily for him, the bullet only grazed the arm, 
but it was enough for the seals to gain the upper hand. They duct-taped his eyes and his mouth, and then duct-taped his hands together and stuffed him in the box. Then they drove the van to a storage unit about an hour away and left the box with Sidney still inside before driving away. During Irene's interview after she was arrested, the agents asked her if Sidney was dead or alive, and she admitted that he was probably dead. In fact, Sidney had only lived for a few days after he was kidnapped, and his death is listed as May 3rd, 1992. He had been dead for about six weeks before the kidnappers were caught. After Sidney died, the SEALs moved his body to a place in the woods that Arthur was familiar with, and they buried him there. Luckily, Irene turned on her husband and led police right to the area. Cadaver dogs were able to pick up Sidney's scent, and after careful digging, his body was found. The FBI removed his wedding band and made sure it was returned to his wife before the day was over. Patricia Riso, Sidney's widow, eventually remarried, but she passed away in 2011. Irene Seal was sent to prison, and she was released clear back in 2009. Arthur Seal is serving a life sentence in prison in South Carolina, and he asked to be released in 2020 because he was in poor health and didn't want to be in prison during COVID. Thankfully, that request was denied. For my last additional history story of the day, I'm going to revisit a topic that has already been discussed in the first two additional history stories. Murder. I know, I know, I know, I already shared multiple murder stories today, but this one is so bizarre with the way it turned out in the end, I couldn't help myself. And besides, that's what newspapers print, murder stories. Anyway, this headline comes from the Star Tribune out of Minneapolis, Minnesota. The headline says, Sure, she had troubles, but Julie also had triumphs. I'm going to start the story out by saying that I could easily do an entire long episode on the murder of Julie Everson. So you're going to just get the Cliff Notes version today. It is truly bizarre in the way it turned out. Okay, here we go. Julie Everson was a 29-year-old woman living in a home in the Minneapolis area. She didn't live alone, though. Julie shared the kitchen and bathroom with a roommate, a man named Keith Bullock. The two tenants didn't always get along very well. On December 28, 1990, Keith burst into Julie's room at 2 o'clock in the morning and started yelling at her. He accused Julie of stealing money from him. She denied it, and the pair got into a fight. It started out with just the accusations and some yelling, but it soon became physical, and Julie said that Keith dragged her into the living room, punched her, and threw some TV equipment at her. I'm not sure which one of the two called the police during the fight, but they were called, and while on the phone with the police, they heard Keith threaten to kill Julie if she didn't leave the home. The police hurried to the scene, and despite Keith denying that he'd touched Julie in any way, he was arrested. He didn't stay in jail for very long, though, because his landlord, a man named Russell Swart, soon came and bailed him out. Russell was on Keith's side for the altercation. Fast forward to January 23rd, and Keith shows up to his scheduled assault trial. But Julie didn't show up. At all. 
since there was nobody at the trial to accuse him or to testify of what he'd done or said during the fight, the charges were dropped and Keith was immediately allowed to go home. Well, it turns out that Julie didn't show up for the trial because she was missing. Nobody had a clue where she was. I don't know how much time passed before her family realized that she was missing, but her mother, Joan, did eventually call the police. She pleaded with them to do something, but they knew that Julie had a troubled past and insisted that she probably just walked away from her life and all of her troubles. If they did any searching for her at all, it was a very half-hearted search. You see, in May of that year, Julie had been arrested herself on a domestic assault charge. I don't have many details on that, though, so I'm not really sure what it was all about. At one point, I know that her landlord walked into her home uninvited while she was in the shower. And she came out, saw him in the home, and, quote, flipped out. She went after him with a knife, and that may or may not be the same incident that she was charged with, but I don't know. Either way, I think I would flip out if I came out of my shower and found an unexpected man in my home, too. Anyway, Joan tried to convince the police that Julie didn't walk away. She tried to convince them to conduct an actual search for her missing daughter, but they did nothing. She told them that if Julie was going to walk away, she would have at the very least taken her money with her, not to mention her prescription medication for the depression she suffered from. Julie had worked at a convenience store before she disappeared, and her co-workers tried to convince the police that Julie hadn't willingly walked away too. Finally, in March, months after she disappeared, a missing persons report was filed, and Joan hired an attorney who got a court order for Joan to be allowed to look into her daughter's bank account. Sure enough, there had been no activity on the account since the previous December. Then, in June, Joan and another daughter were able to talk to a different investigator who actually took interest in the case. On June 26th of 1991, six months after she was last seen, the police got a search warrant for the home where Julie had lived before she disappeared. And you know what? They could tell right away that there had been recent digging near some of the trees in the backyard. The police decided to do a little digging themselves, and they uncovered Julie's body. Her wrists and ankles had been duct taped together, and she had a bag tied around her head. After neighbors reported seeing them digging around in the backyard, Julie's roommate, Keith Bullock, and her landlord, Russell Swart, were both arrested and charged with her murder. During the trials, the defense tried to smear Julie's name and reputation. I'm sorry, but no matter how many problems a person has, it's not an excuse to murder them. Julie's family said that when she was young, she was a sweet girl with a lot of energy. Her older sister said that she was the most adventurous person in the family. When she was just two and a half years old, she woke up early one morning, got her mother's purse, snuck out of the house, and began to ride away on her tricycle. She said she was going on a trip, and she managed to get two miles from her home before she was found, as happy as could be to be out and about. Then, as a teen, she won trophies for riding horses and barrel races. But as Julie got older, she began to struggle. She dropped out of high school, but worked hard and eventually got her GED. She loved to read the Bible, and she loved to write poetry. 
and despite her depression, Julie's family described her as a tomboy and an extrovert who loved animals. They never did find out what happened to her cats after she was murdered. She'd only been working at her job for a few weeks before she disappeared, but her boss insisted she was a great employee and was excited that she'd been able to save enough money to buy Christmas presents for her family. Sadly, one of those family members was her brother John, and in an extra trying time for Julie's family, a month before her body was found, he was killed in a motorcycle accident. While Julie was considered missing, Joan went to Julie's old home on multiple occasions to try to take possession of her personal things. But the landlord, Russell Swart, wouldn't let her have anything. He said he would be charging Julie for the storage fees since she didn't take any of her stuff with her when she left. Well, fast forward to December of 1991, a year after Julie was last seen, and the first of the murder trials took place. This is where this story turns bizarre, as I mentioned at the beginning. The first trial was for the landlord, Russell Swart. The case and evidence against him were presented, and it seemed to Julie's family that the prosecution had made a pretty good case. They expected him to be found guilty. Except when the jury returned the verdict, Russell Swart was acquitted. Julie's family was shocked. They were convinced that Russell had been the mastermind behind the murder, and Keith had just been an accomplice. Fast forward to April of 1992, and it's not just the L.A. riots that are making headlines. That time, it was the trial of Keith Bullock, the roommate. Keith ended up confessing to the crime and said that it was indeed him that killed Julie Everson. He hoped that by pleading guilty, his sentence would be lighter, and maybe, just maybe, he'd see life outside of a prison cell someday. Well, the time of Keith's sentencing trial came and Russell Swart was asked to testify on the stand about what happened back in December of 1990. Russell had never testified during his own trial, but he was willing to tell the story during Keith's trial. But there was a catch. Russell wanted immunity from any further action, just in case, if he testified. The prosecution agreed, really wanting a conviction for at least one of the men, and Russell Swart took the stand except he didn't go up there and start pointing fingers at Keith like they thought he was going to do. Instead, he told everyone in the courtroom that after Keith and Julie had had their big fight, he went over to the home to talk to her. The two of them began the fight, and Russell ended up strangling her and killing her. Keith had nothing to do with the murder. Yep, the man who had just been given immunity, the man who had already been acquitted, confessed to being the murderer. Because of the immunity and because of double jeopardy, he knew he was safe and there was no point in making it so Keith went to prison. The two men walked out of the courtroom that day as free men and neither of them were ever punished for Julie Everson's murder. Even though everyone knew exactly who Julie's murderer was, he was allowed to go on living his life while Julie's was cut very, very short. Since this has been an extra long episode today, I'm going to keep our advertisement of the day short and sweet. This ad comes from the News Journal out of Wilmington, Delaware. It's an ad for a luxury apartment complex called Brandywine 100. The apartments come with appliances. 
There's air conditioning and heating in every room. There are on-site laundry facilities. There are on-site security guards. Each apartment has a balcony. There's an exercise room in the building. There's a social room with a big screen TV. They have covered parking, and each apartment comes with free membership to the racket and fitness club. Prices for a two-bedroom rental these days will set you back thousands of dollars a month. But back in 92, you could have rented one of those big, fancy apartments with all the amenities for just $775 a month. Not bad. Friends, I know this episode has been long, but thanks for sticking with me to the end. The LA riots and everything that surrounded them were definitely a low point in our nation's history. Join me over in the Additional History Facebook group, where I'll show pictures from some of the stories of this episode. Then come back this Thursday for a special mini-episode, where I'll tell you about another incident from the 1990s that you might have forgotten about. And then, as always, I'll be back again Monday with a new full-size episode. Talk to you later.